0: All right, good morning, good morning, good morning. It's good to see each of you. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan Pittman, and I have the pleasure of serving as the senior or lead pastor here, as well as one of the elders. And we are absolutely thrilled that you chose to come and worship with us today. Uh, hopefully, when you came in, you picked up a worship guide, and uh, on the back of the worship guide, there's a place where you can take notes as we go through the sermon in just a moment. Uh, I did want to kind of draw attention to what was said on the video a moment ago. Uh, the times, they are a-changing, as you saw on the video, and don't forget that all the signs you see around the building are correct, except for one thing, and that was because Awana stands for what? Ah, ah Wait. Awana needs adjusting, right? All right, so originally we were going to start that on September the 11th, but we are having a church-wide celebration for our 25th anniversary as a church family that evening with a potluck meal and all that on September 11th. And because of that, we cannot start a WANA until the 18th. So look at the signs, just always remember Awana actually starts on the 18th, but I wanted to run through a few of the things real quickly. We are changing several things, and they're changing for uh, strategic reasons, and that is First of all, our Sunday morning services will begin on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Not our worship service, but our church activities with an equipping class. Those equipping classes will begin on September the 11th, and, and we used to call them discipleship classes. The classes are the same, but we have changed the word for several reasons, one of which is because discipleship involves lots of things as the Lord changes our lives from the inside out as we begin to live out more faithfully and follow Jesus more closely, and and he not only uses classes for that, he uses lots of other things for discipleship purposes as well. And so all of our uh, classes are designed to equip us uh, to be prepared to follow Jesus. And some of them are classes that are more educational in nature, some are more conversational in nature, some are, are theological in nature, some of them are studying the Bible together, and all of those form together to equip us for acts of ministry. So that begins on Sunday, September the 11th at 9 o'clock. And last semester we started at 8.30, and we realized 8.30 was just a tad bit early, so that's the reason we're bumping to 9 o'clock. I want to encourage each of you uh, to consider plugging into one of our core classes. Here at uh, our church we are establishing three core classes. They're not dissimilar from some uh, foundational type classes we've had in the past, and this semester we'll be offering Christian belief, and that's going to be on doctrine. And I'd encourage you to consider plugging in being a part of that. And then our Sunday morning services, starting the first Sunday of September, which is September the 4th, are moving to 1030. And the reason we're moving to 10.30 is so we can move the uh, equipment class to 9 o'clock. So starting September 4th, we'll have worship at 10.30. And then uh, 6.05, which is our youth gathering, has normally been on Sunday nights. It's moving to Wednesday nights. And that starts on the first Wednesday night of September, which is September 7th. And since it's 6.05, it starts at 6.05. And then Awana, you'll be hearing all kinds of stuff about Awana. And that's our children's discipleship type ministry that helps kids learn scripture and memorize scripture and and we want families and parents to be involved in helping to lead that out and you'll be hearing some details about that very soon that starts on september the 18th don't read the sign the sign is correct on the time but not the date september 18th and that'll be starting at five o'clock i want to encourage each of you as you see that sign that you would be reminded first of all that awana starts on the 18th and then secondly all of those details that those are designed for all of us as a church family to lean in, to, to be an active participant of what God's doing in this place. So we're not just coming on Sunday mornings to to sing a few songs and to hear a guy talk for a while and say howdy to a few folks and then leave and we're done for the week. Rather, we're called to be a church family, a church body together and all of these pieces, in addition to our hope groups that you'll be hearing about very soon and other things that are taking place, we are leaning in this year to be the body of Christ so that we can be the church who works together to glorify the Lord as we learn to be a disciple and make disciples along the way. If you're not yet a church member, maybe you've been coming for a while, I'd encourage you to come to our membership class. It's happening next Sunday morning after the service. We'll have lunch, we'll have child care, but in order to prepare for that, we need you to register. If you don't know how to register for that, that's okay. You can go to our website and find it. If you can't find it there, stop by uh, out uh, at the welcome table that's right out here in the foyer after the service. And we'll kind of walk you through that, or you can call the church office this week. We want all of us to really see what God's doing in this place and be active participants in it. All right, if you don't mind, go ahead and grab a Bible. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Psalm 118. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a chair near you. And if you don't own a Bible or you know somebody that needs a Bible, feel free to take that hardbound Bible with you, and that'll be our gift to you this morning. We'll be looking at Psalm 18 this morning. This uh, summer, we've been walking through some of the psalms together. Next week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 119. Uh, Don't panic. We're not going to read all 156 or whatever it is. I can't remember how many it is. Uh, Anyway, we're not going to read all of those next week, but we are going to be looking at a portion of Psalm 119. Today, though, we're going to look at Psalm 118. I don't know if you grew up in church or not. But I I did. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in East Texas. And just like most Southern Baptist churches in East Texas, we had a hymnal called the Baptist hymnal that sat in the pew rack in front of you, right? And I don't know whether your church did this or not, but every single Sunday morning at our church at First Baptist Church in Commerce, Texas, we would have responsive readings. Does anybody know what that is? Responsive readings, you're like, you just said a hymnal, like a hymnal songs, right? Yes and no. At the back of your hymnal, you would have responsive readings, and you'd say, turn to, not hymn, but turn to responsive reading 733, and we would all stand, and there'd be some text that was, you know, normal typeface, and that would, I think, be, I think that was like the preacher would read that, and then the bold, everybody would read it together, right? All right, so some of you are like, yeah, I know that, I know that, all right, so starting next week, no, we are, but, but... In all seriousness, there is a great value with some of the responsive readings. And we here at our church typically only use responsive readings usually around parent and child dedication, where the parents respond and we as a church family respond. But this morning, because of the text we're looking at, we get to use a responsive reading today. So turn with me to Psalm 118. We're going to walk through a little bit at a time. We're not going to read it all at once. And you can take notes as we go along, but, but let's look at Psalm 118, verses 1 through 4, and see if you can spot the responsive reading. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. So here we are. We are at the beginning of a psalm that is calling us to worship. We talked about that last week. It's the idea that it's setting the tone. We're about to worship the Lord together, and he calls attention to that fact. So in verse 1, which we'll find later, repeats itself at the very end of Psalm 118. The first psalm, sorry, the first verse calls us to worship. It says what are we to do? We are to give thanks. It says, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good." Like that would preach in and of itself right there, right? But we're going to walk through this psalm to see the various ways that we experience the goodness of God. And the underlying current to it all is found in the second part of verse 1. Why do we worship the Lord? Why do we give thanks to the Lord? Why do we see that he is good? And it resounds loudly, for his steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love. Depending on your translation, there could be another word there. One common word is loving kindness or mercy might be there. there there's the problem, not the problem, but the issue, that's not a bad way. Don't think negative connotation. The, the thing about, there we go. The thing about the word here from the Hebrew for steadfast love is one word, and, and I'm going to try to pronounce it. Forgive my Hebrew, and if you're sitting close to me, hopefully I won't spit on you. But, but the word is chesed, chesed. Chesed. It has this guttural sound to it. It's typically spelled in the English, H-E-S-E-D. And that word chesed, or chesed, it carries with it various meanings. It's not succinct. It's a full-orbed picture of who God is. The words for steadfast love means loving kindness. It means goodness. It means kindness. It means faithfulness. And almost every time it is listed in the Old Testament, almost every time it's spoken of God's love for his people. It's not normally used for anyone else's love for anybody else. It's God's love for us. It expresses God's faithful love to his people, which is linked to the covenant that he has made with his people. So now, we can see in verses 2, 3, and 4 the responsive reading that takes place. He sets the stage in verse 1. He says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then he calls out to those that are listening to him. Look at verse 2. He says, Israel, would you repeat after me? His steadfast love endures forever. He calls out to the nation of God's people, God's chosen people to worship the Lord together. And then verse 3, look at verse 3. It says, the, let the house of Aaron say. You're like, who is Aaron? Do you remember Aaron? Aaron is Moses' brother. Uh, Moses and Aaron were the ones that God used to bring the people out of, uh, out of Egypt in slavery. And Aaron and his descendants became the priests of Israel. So you could see that in verse 3, basically he's saying, priests, would you repeat after me? The steadfast lo- uh, his steadfast love endures forever. And then he finishes in verse 4. And in verse 4 he says, let all of those who fear the Lord, let the congregation, let everybody that loves the Lord respond and say his steadfast love endures forever. And so, this morning, you and I get to do a little bit of responsive reading. Just like in verses 2, 3, and 4, the response, the proper response is his steadfast love endures forever. That's going to be the proper response in this scenario as well. Just as in verses 2, 3, and 4, he divides the crowd, if you will, into three groups. I'm going to do the same thing this morning. And so I'm going to ask the men to respond. I'm going to ask the women to respond. And then I'm going to ask all of us, as the congregation to respond. And so I encourage you, let us not just go, His steadfast love endures forever. Like, let's say it with passion. Let's say it with enthusiasm. Let's say as if it really matters because it really does. So, this morning, the words are on the screen. And I'm not going to respond, women, whenever it's your turn. So, you can just kind of take the initiative and say it out loud. So, here we go, all right? Everybody ready with me? Let the men say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the women say, His steadfast love endures forever. And then let the congregation say, His steadfast love endures forever. Guys, we cannot sleep through that. We can't breeze past that. We can't say, oh, yeah, that's a good, uh, that's awesome, that's cool, that's good, I'm glad he loves us. No, this is a big deal. The God of the universe, the sovereign Lord of it all, the creator who made everything, the holy, perfect God, he loves us with a steadfast love that endures forever. He has a covenant love for us. He doesn't love us any less because we don't follow him. Rather, he loves us and woos us back so that we might follow him and serve him. He doesn't love us with a steadfast love and therefore it doesn't matter what we do because he always loves us and we know he loves us and we might as well do our own thing. No, no, when we realize he has a steadfast love for us, then we desire to follow him and serve him. So this morning's message is simply called, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And the underlying uh, piece to it all is, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 is a part of a section of the psalms called the Hallel, H-A-L-L-E-L. You can kind of see it looks like the word hallelujah almost. It's like an abbreviated version of the word hallelujah. The reason for that is because it means praise. It's a praise section of the psalms. Like A lot of them are praise psalms, yes, but Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. So this is the last one of the Hallel psalms. 113 through 118 are referred to as the Hallel uh, uh, psalms. And these would be used on the people's way to Jerusalem to worship. If, if, if you might remember with me, in the Old Testament, there would be several festivals to celebrate. But three of them were referred to as pilgrimage festivals. Where, where they, were, uh, they had a desire to and they were called to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And so Passover would be one of those, Pentecost would be the other, and I've gone blank on my third one, but there's three of them that they would go to Jerusalem to worship uh, every year. And they would recite or sing or pray through Psalms 113 through 118. And so here we are, we're reading Psalm 118. As they're arriving into Jerusalem, they would be praising God and thanking him for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. This whole psalm, as we will see, is an exposition or an unpacking of God's great covenantal love for his people Israel through the ages, in in spite of, regardless of their, at times, going against him. That's the very definition of his steadfast love for us. That he doesn't cease to love us whenever we don't follow him. Like, he always loves us. If you're familiar with Luke 15 that walks through three parables that Jesus tells about things that are lost. A coin, a sheep, and then the prodigal son. They're parables that Jesus tells to try to describe his love for us and those who are lost. And If you remember the parable of the prodigal son, whenever the prodigal son runs and uses up all his money and then he comes back kind of begging and pleading that his father would take him back, do you remember what the father does? The father doesn't go, yeah, that's right, go live in the backyard. No, no, no. He welcomes him back in, right? Like he sees him coming from the distance and the father goes to him and loves him and lavishes gifts upon him. And that is a picture of God's steadfast love for us. So let's look at some of the things that describe God's steadfast love for us. We're going to now look at Psalm 118 again, but verses 5 through 7. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. You'll notice in this psalm, over and over and over again, the psalmist repeats himself. And whenever he repeats himself, we better pay attention. And you probably noticed some repeating in this text already. This first point that you'll see on your sermon notes is this, that God, when I say he, I'm talking about God, the Lord is for us. He is for us. We see that in verses 5 through 7. In my translation, the SV it says that he is on our side. He is on our side. The psalmist says in the middle of his distress when all seemed to be falling down around him, that he cried out to the Lord, and he says that the Lord answered me, and he delivered me, or he set me free. He says two different times that God has demonstrated that he is on my side. I love what it says in verses 6 and 7. It says that the Lord is his helper. Women, side note real quick. And men too. Whenever in the Old Testament, whenever in Genesis we see that the Lord made woman and man and brought them together for marriage, what does he say about the woman? That she is to be his helpmate, right? His helper. A helper is not a gopher. A helper is not a flunky. The word helper is actually here to describe God. So whenever it says that a woman is a helper, that's a strong word. Because the word help, when he says that he helps us in verse 6 and 7, the Lord is on my side as my helper, he's describing himself. All right, so here we go. The Hebrew for the Lord is on my side is more literally something along the lines of Yahweh is for me. Yahweh is with me. The Lord is for me. The Lord is with me. How is it possible that God is on his side? How is it that God is with him or for him? The reason God is with him or for him, the reason God is with us and for us, the reason the Lord is on our side is if we have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, then we have entered a covenant relationship with him. And because he has put his covenant on us, he is with us. He is for us. He is beside us. Here's a rhetorical question that he asks in verse 6. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? The answer would be a resounding, loud nothing. Like absolutely nothing. When the Lord is on our side, no man or woman or entity can touch us. Life may not go our way, but God is with us and for us. You see, the divine warrior, the Lord of hosts, is with us. And so, no human, nothing can harm us. You may want to jot this verse down, Romans 8.31. Maybe it's a familiar verse to you. Paul is talking about what happens whenever the love of God is within us, whenever we're in relationship with him. And he says in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on from there. And begins to describe the love that the Lord has for us. And he says that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's verse 39 of Romans 8. This morning, if you are in that kind of relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, then His steadfast love for you endures forever. So I encourage you take confidence in that, as we walk through this crazy, wild, turbulent, confusing, chaotic world that we live in. This crazy, scary world that we live in. Remember, if you are in Christ Jesus, His steadfast love endures forever. The second point is going to come from verses eight through thirteen. Let's look at that together. Verses eight through thirteen. He says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Verse 9 repeats again. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. You're going to hear this repeated. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. You can hear the panic. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The note that you have on your sermon notes is this, that the Lord, he is our defender. As you read that, probably a picture came to your mind. It's a picture of a military battle. I mean, this psalm, we don't know for sure who wrote it. Perhaps it was David. Perhaps it was another king. It's this picture of of a battle going on around him. And he says four different times in those verses. There's only six verses we just read, verses 8 through 13. In those six verses, four different times, he used the words that he's surrounded on every side by enemies. And then the word picture he uses in verse 12 is it's like a swarm of bees, like, I don't know about you, I don't want to be in a swarm of bees. I'm not a beekeeper. I know they can be docile, but I, when I picture swarm of bees, I'm picturing get out of Dodge, right? And so here is, is the psalmist saying, I'm surrounded. You can hear the urgency in the moment. Maybe you and I have been in there as well. Now, I realize that in this room there are some of you men and women that are probably veterans, and you served in war, and you literally have been there. Some of you I know in this room are, are law enforcement, and you've been maybe not in war, but you've been in a situation like that. Some of you, maybe you were uh, uh, played football, and, and it's not war, it's not a battle, but there is this idea that enemies are all around you. Maybe you haven't done any of those things, but I anticipate that all of us in circumstances in life can feel like everything is crowding in around us. And we're surrounded, and what are we going to do in the midst of all of this? So we have an option. What are we going to do when we need refuge? Where are we going to seek our protection? Where are we going to seek our shelter? Where are we going to seek our defense? And the two options that he lists are found in um, verses 8 and 9. It says this. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. In, in um, Psalms, in Hebrew poetry, there's a thing called parallelism, where uh, one line rep- repeats another, and sometimes one verse repeats another verse, and sometimes like it does here in verses 8 and 9, is, it can be referred to as a staircase or a stair step. Parallelism, where, where it's saying the exact same thing, but it kind of ranks it up one ratches it up one more notch he says what can i do he says am i going to take refuge in this in the lord which is better or am i going to take refuge or trust in man just any any person or am i going to trust in the government or in authorities or in princes no it says it's better to trust in the lord than to trust in man what he's saying is trust the lord alone It doesn't mean that our families don't love us and don't care for us. It doesn't mean that we can't trust our parents or our siblings or our neighbors or our our other brothers and sisters in Christ. But ultimately, our trust better not be in a person. Our trust better be in God. And so if our trust is in the Lord, and if we're being a church family together, then we can trust one another. But the basis of the trusting of one another is not each other. The trust is what the Lord is doing in our lives, right? And so he's saying, you've got an option. Either you're going to trust in, in man, which includes myself. I can trust in myself or others, or I can trust in God. And he says, it's much better to trust in man. I'm sorry, ooh, ugh. much better to trust in God. Don't take that sound bite. That was not what I meant to say. Him trusting in the Lord alone. The way he can do that is it presupposes that he has a loyalty to the Lord. It demonstrates that he has a loyalty to the Lord. Doesn't mean he follows the Lord entirely, all the time, perfectly, but he's in a covenant relationship with the Lord. He's trusted in the Lord for salvation, and he's trusted the Lord in all matters of life. And because of that, he can say with confidence, it's better to trust in the Lord than it is to trust in others. It's based, this relationship he has with the Lord is based not on what the psalmist has done. His relationship with the Lord is based on what the Lord has done for him because the Lord's covenant love endures forever. I love verses 10 through 12. He panics a bit. He says four times in three verses, I'm I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded, I, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. But then I love every time he says that. Three times in a row, verse 10 finishes this way. Verse 11 finishes this way. Verse 12 finishes this way. And he says, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. He says, my enemies have surrounded me. I don't know what to do. Wait a minute. In the name of the Lord, I'm able to cut them off. I'm able to destroy them. I can destroy them in the name of the Lord. Whenever he says the name of the Lord, he's referencing the Lord's authority. The Lord's power. The Lord's presence. And that all of that is what brings the victory. Remember what we said in those verses eight and nine? In verses eight and nine, uh, yeah, verses eight and nine, he says, I can take refuge in in God or I can take refuge in man. And he says, No, I'm not going to take refuge in man. I'm not destroying my enemies in, in my own name, I'm destroying them in the name of the Lord. So I encourage you don't come at enemies or problems in your life in your own name you will fail every single time but if you come at your problems and issues in life in the name of the lord then he will cut it off now don't get me wrong it doesn't always mean that the thing we're facing dissipates and goes away Sometimes that illness lingers. Sometimes that financial problem lingers. Sometimes that relationship issue continues to linger in spite of everything you're doing to try to make it right. But in the midst of what you're facing, the Lord cuts that off in the sense that he is with you and he empowers you to continue to battle for his sake and for his glory. Let's look at the next section, verses 14 through 18. He says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So not only is the Lord for us, not only is He our defender, but here we see that the Lord is our strength. He uses those words in verse 14. He says, the Lord is my strength. He is my song. He is the reason to sing. All too often, as we go through life, things can be so difficult that we have no desire to sing because we, we just don't know what to do and things don't seem to be going right. But what the psalmist says here is that we have a Savior. He is the Lord. He is our strength. And because of His strength, we can sing and shout and praise the Lord. Verse 14, when it says here, Let me turn back to it. Verse 14 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I want to read to you Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. Exodus chapter 15, verse 2 says the same basic thing. The context of this is that Moses has delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt... They've gotten to the Red Sea. You remember how the Red Sea is parted? They get across the Red Sea. Then God closes the Red Sea, and, and, and Pharaoh and his army are, are, are swept under, right? And so then Moses sings. It's called the Song of Moses. Exodus 15, verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And so in Psalm 118, whenever he says that, in verse 14, he's basically echoing the words of Moses, and he's causing the people of Israel to reflect on the covenant love of the Lord, how he's provided for them through the ages. You see, the Lord is our strength. Then look at verses 15 and 16. Three different times it refers to the right hand of the Lord. Two different times it says that the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. What's the deal with the right hand? The right hand, I'm, no, I'm sorry left-handed people, but <laughs> right hand is typically used to refer to strength or power or authority. So the Lord's right hand is his strength, his his mighty power. It's the one that he conquers with. It does valiant work. In many ways, this is a carryover from the previous section. The one that described the battle that's going on, that the Lord's helping us, and he's rejoicing for the fact that the Lord's strength has brought victory. But the truth of the matter is this. The Lord's strength is not just experienced in 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 battles that we win i love the fact that he includes in verse 18 it says this the lord has disciplined me severely but he has not given me over to death so even when the lord disciplines us for sin which he will his strength helps us in the midst of that discipline right You see, he's disciplined for sin that he's committed, but the Lord didn't leave him for dead. The Lord disciplined him, but he gave him the strength to press through that discipline to begin to follow the Lord again. And so the reality is this, that the Lord is our strength whenever we face attacks from the outside, whenever we face confusion from the inside, whenever we're facing punishment from the Lord or discipline from the Lord, his strength carries us through. But in all of this, The only way we can experience the strength of the Lord is when we acknowledge our own weakness. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says. Paul says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So my question for you is, do you realize your weakness and therefore do you trust in his strength? Because if we don't realize our weakness, we're going to trust in our own strength and we're going to fail every time. But when we see our weakness and trust in the Lord's strength, there is hope. Move with me to verses 19 through 24. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that, I, that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice And be glad in it. So on your notes, you'll see that he, the Lord, is our salvation. He is our salvation. He alone is our salvation. What we have in these verses, verses 19 through 24, is an image of a victorious army that is coming back to the city of Israel, uh, sorry, the city of Jerusalem, and they're coming to the gates of the temple to praise the Lord. The Lord has brought victory, and so they're going to go back to worship him. And so whenever the psalmist writes this, he's describing how the Lord is our strength and how he's our defender and how he's with us and he's for us. And because of that, and when we seize our salvation, we go and worship him for who he is. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, he says, you have become my salvation. You have become my deliverer. Yes, There's deliverance that he experiences from his enemies, but ultimately the salvation or deliverance that you and I need, the salvation or deliverance that he needs is beyond the battles that we face. And the victory or the salvation that we need is salvation over our sin. Scripture says, All throughout Scripture, from the beginning to the very end, we see a picture that God has created man and woman in the image of God and that he has designed us to bring him glory and to praise him. But we also see over and over and over and over again that that we as humans fall short of the glory of God. We don't glorify him like we should. We go our own path instead of his path. We sin. We disobey God. We rebel against God. And because of our sin, Scripture says that we have no place to be in the presence of a holy, perfect God. But the good news is that the Lord is our salvation. In the Old Testament, whenever the word the Lord is used, it's used in the sense of the word Yahweh, and it's referring to the one true Lord, the one true God. And then when we get into the New Testament, we see that the word Lord begins to be used to describe Jesus Christ because He is our Lord and Savior. And the good news is that God sent His Son to die a death that you and I deserve He lived a perfect life, yet was without sin, and died for our sins, that our sins might be forgiven. He died and was raised on the third day in order that he might become our salvation and our deliverer. Have you trusted in him for salvation? See, it sounds great to say the Lord's on my side. That's cool. Like, who doesn't want that? The Lord is my strength. That's awesome. The Lord is my defender. That's right. Ain't nobody going to get my way. No, the reality is we don't experience those things until we at first experience him as our Savior. So if you place your faith and your trust in Jesus, yes, we need deliverance from difficult situations. But your deliverance and your salvation that you need is not from the situation you find yourself in. Rather, the deliverance we need is a spiritual deliverance, the deliverance from sin. Verse 19. It says that the gates of righteousness are opened so that I may enter them. The only way the gates of righteousness are opened, the only way an access to the Lord is open to us is through Jesus Christ. He alone provides access to the very presence of God. So I encourage us this morning, let's praise God that Jesus is our salvation. It's his victory that matters, not our victory. It's not like, oh my goodness, you see what I did there? No, let's look and praise the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And it begins with the salvation that the Lord offers to us. Verse 22. Verse 22, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We sang about the cornerstone a moment ago. When the psalmist writes this, he's saying, hey, I was once in distress. I didn't know where to turn. And whenever I was in that moment of distress, it's like I was cast aside. I was rejected. I was turned aside. I was unimportant. But now that the Lord has brought me salvation, I've been vindicated and I have a special importance to God. That's what it means in this context. But the reality is there's something much bigger about this verse than this man going through what he's going through. Rather, who is this talking about ultimately in verse 22? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was rejected, yet he is the cornerstone that brings all things together. Acts 4, verse 11. We've been walking through the book of Acts earlier this year. I wanted to read one verse to you. Acts 4, verse 11 says this. the middle of preaching that peter is sharing that he says this jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone so whenever we read in in psalm 118 verse 22 about the stone that was rejected ultimately that points to jesus who brings salvation i was reminded of another childhood song look at verse 24 y'all want me singing for you probably not this is the day this is the day that the lord and we sing it around right This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Don't get me wrong. Every day that the Lord has created, we should rejoice in. But there's something special about the day that's referenced here in verse 24. In verse 24, it's rejoicing for the fact that the Lord has made Jesus the cornerstone. The salvation for the world is available through Jesus. And because of that day is why we celebrate this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice in the fact that He offers salvation and forgiveness of sins. We're all sinners deserving judgment from God, but when He forgives us, by golly, that is reason to sing. My question for you this morning is can you say with the psalmist, The Lord has become my salvation? Let's look at verses 25 through 27. Save us, oh, save us, we pray, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we praise, repeating himself again, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Here we see that the Lord is worthy of our praise. See, whenever we know that the Lord is our Savior, then we can pray to him and experience God's continued deliverance. Verse 25, in verse 25, in the English it says, save us, we pray. In the Hebrew, it'd simply be the word Hosanna. Perhaps you've heard that word, right? The word Hosanna simply means to save now or save us, Lord, we pray. And so he's saying, save us, Lord, not because you, you haven't, but because you have in the past and therefore continue to bring the salvation that we're experiencing. Hosanna is asking for salvation, and it's also praising God for that salvation. Perhaps you remember the story of Jesus as he walked into, or rode into, I should say, on, the, uh, on a colt of a donkey into the, the, the city of Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday. In Mark 11, verse 9, it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118. You see, the Lord has a steadfast love for us, and he deserves to be praised. Verse 27 begins to talk about a festal sacrifice and tying it up with cords and putting on the horns of the altar. The picture here is that they're getting ready to go in to perform a sacrifice to the Lord to worship him and praise him for who he is. All of this points to the value of our God and our need to praise him. Last week, in Psalm 111, we read this verse, praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And my question for you last week as well as this week is this, does that define you? Are you praising the Lord with all that you have? How might the Lord be calling you and I to worship him more fully? Now I want us to look at the last verse, verse 28, or sorry, next to last verse, verse 28, you are my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. He again repeats himself. He says two different times, you are my God. So therefore in your notes, it says he is our God. This phrase, you are my God, that said twice. It leads him to worship the Lord fully and to give him all praise. It's a picture of the covenant formula that existed. Perhaps you're familiar with this in the Old Testament. Time and time and time again, in fact, I read it this morning as I was reading in the book of Numbers, time and time and time again, the Lord would say, I will be their God, and they will be my people, or I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so whenever they say, you are my God, you are my God, they're not saying, hey, I got you on my side, and therefore that makes me better than everybody else. Instead, it's pointing to the covenant that exists, they acknowledge God, you are our God, therefore we are your people. We are your people in the sense that we're following you and serving you and loving you and pointing others towards you as well. You see, because of God's steadfast love for us, we are called to live out the covenant with him. See, it's not enough for us to sing the truth that God is God. Rather, we sing that he is our God, acknowledging that we are also his people, and to be his people means that we are his followers. That means we are obeying his commandments. To be his people involves being a disciple and obeying all that he's taught us. So my question to you is, are you able to say he is our God and by that living that truth out in your life as you seek to follow him? And then at the very bottom of your notes, is kind of what I would refer to as my bottom line, and it ties right back into how this whole thing started. It's the exact same verse that we read in verse 1. Verse 29 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, is repeated six times in this psalm. This is clearly the theme of the chapter. It's because of his love for us, because of his steadfast love for us, because of his faithful love for us because of this covenantal love for us that we are different you see we experience the blessings of him being for us we experience the blessings of him being our defender we experience the blessings of him being our strength we acknowledge that he is our salvation that salvation is not only for conversion but also our salvation as we continue to be sanctified more and more into the likeness of christ And all of this makes him worthy of praise, and it makes him worthy of a lifetime of us following him. So I've got a few questions to ask you. Maybe some of them will relate. Maybe some of them will ring a bell. Maybe some of them are something you may need to do this week as a result of this message. How are you doing? Are you worshiping him and living for him? Where is God leading you to trust him? We said that we shouldn't trust man, we shouldn't trust princes. Is there a place in your life where you need to begin to trust him with that thing, with that relationship, with that concern? Perhaps is he leading you to repent of sin? The psalmist acknowledged the reason that he was going through some of what he was going through is because the Lord was disciplining him, and yet the Lord was his strength to see himself through that discipline. Is there a sin that you need to repent of? Where is God calling you to faithful obedience? In what ways are you to focus on what it means to truly be a disciple? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus? If not, would you consider doing that this morning? If you have, then you can say with this psalmist, He is our God. You are our God. But the question is, are you living your life in a way that is a reflection of that truth as you're seeking to follow Him more closely? Don't do it in your own power. Don't do it in your own strength. Do it through him, and he'll empower you to do that. Let me lead us in prayer.